you brought a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5. If not, no worries. We got it on the fill-ins and the outline in your worship folder. And uh, we'll also have it on the screen. I invite you to turn there now. I uh, just appreciate you uh, coming out on Labor Day weekend, taking notes, leaning in. Appreciate it a lot. I really believe in this word today and uh, think there's something here for every single one of us all weekend. Um, it's just been a blast to uh, bring this uh, word from God. We're going to be uh, Luke 5. Before we go there, how many know that when God went to go write the Bible, he didn't have to take a poll? He didn't have to contact his constituents and his donors before he decided what his opinion would be? It's just, it is what it is. Truth is truth. I'm so grateful for that. Jesus heals a man with leprosy. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. When the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said. Titled these uh, two messages, these next two weeks, where there's a willing, there's a way. How many of you know Pastor Will Chalicombe on staff here? Man, whenever I'm working with him, I'm like, we're golden because where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> where there's a willing, there's a way. I am willing, he said. Be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared and Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster, and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. So this week and next, we're going to be in this story. I'm going to call it this encounter with Jesus. This encounter with Jesus is so powerful because it reveals a lot about who he is, his character, and who he wants to be to each one of us. First thing I just want you to know right up front, if you could write this in or lock this in somewhere, is Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of Christianity. I just want to talk to you about cornerstone for a minute. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of Christianity. In ancient buildings, many of you know this, the cornerstone would have been the essential principal stone placed at the corner of a structure, and the cornerstone would have the largest, uh, most solid, it would be the most strategically placed stone of them all. And I recently learned that they would actually uh, many times not even move this stone, they would just go out and look for it. So if they were to build a building on a mountainside or in rocky terrain, they would find a stone that was already firmly placed in the land and wasn't going to move, and they would just build from there. Everything resting upon, leaning upon, built from this cornerstone. Jesus is that to us. He is the cornerstone of our existence. He's the cornerstone of our reality, of our faith, that we lean upon. And everything stems from that solid cornerstone. And today, instead of cornerstone, we might say the foundation or the backbone or the linchpin But I love that word cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Christ, by the way, isn't Jesus' last name. It means anointed one. It means Jesus 
And that's it. Jesus Christ, cornerstone, Christ alone, cornerstone. But for whatever reason, I have a tendency and you have a tendency to forget that this is all built on Jesus Christ and this is all coming back to Jesus Christ and this is all leaning on Jesus Christ and we get into our faith and we start to think that the cornerstone, the thing that our faith rests on is something other than Jesus. Like what Bible translation I read from, that's my cornerstone. Or what my family looks like and what we do and don't do, that's what the cornerstone looks like. And Maybe it's what church, what kind of church we go to, or what kind of worship style we prefer, or what music or what preacher we listen to. And we can even start to think that the cornerstone of Christianity is grace, or love, or forgiveness, or mercy, or justice. And before you walk out on me, I'm not making light of those things. I think we could all agree that the Christian life without those things is no Christian life at all. It's pretty pitiful, right? But without Jesus, they're weak cornerstones. Because we can't forget that grace is a person. Love is a person. So if you want to know what love looks like, you don't go off your feeling. You look to Jesus and you see perfect love. If you want to know what grace should look like, you look to Jesus. Because love is a person. Grace is a person. Mercy is a person. Justice is a person. The word is a person. John 1.14, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. After Jesus came and he ascended into heaven, uh, two of his followers were working together, Peter and John. Uh, they had just been arrested uh, for healing a cripple. And the next day, they're kind of pulled in front of this large crowd and they're being questioned in front of everyone. And... Peter kind of rolls with one of the questions and just starts, filled with the Holy Spirit, starts preaching boldly. And he starts preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And within this little sermon, he quotes an Old Testament Bible verse. He quotes prophecy. And he says, for Jesus is the one referred to in scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected, the stone that wasn't good enough for you, the stone that didn't look right, the stone that didn't look like what you wanted it to look like, you rejected, has now become the cornerstone, the prophecies fulfilled. And he is, he's the cornerstone of all we believe. He's the cornerstone of the church and through him come every good gift, the word, grace, mercy, justice, forgiveness, love, provision, peace, a future, a life, an eternity, worry-free re religion, a relationship with him, and everything else to those who believe in him and follow him is coming through Jesus. So if Jesus is the cornerstone if he's the solid rock on which the foundation of my life must be built, the question is, what do I got to know about Jesus? What do I got to believe about Jesus? How do I follow him? And that's the question. What do Christians believe about Jesus? I think there's three essential things we need to believe about Jesus. Now, there's a lot of essentials to the Christian faith, and there's quite a few things that God does want his followers to know and to believe and to be uni united on. 
But I'm just giving you three about Jesus Christ. Write these in if you would. Three things I must know and believe about Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus. Say incarnation. Incarnation. The crucifixion of Jesus. Say crucifixion. Crucifixion. And the resurrection of Jesus. Say resurrection. resurrection. Those are all theological words. Let me explain them to you. If you were to look at the Christian calendar and you were to look at what Christians celebrate every year, we celebrate these three things. At Christmas, Christians celebrate the incarnation. God became man. He put flesh and bone on. He became human. And we celebrate that. On Good Friday, we celebrate the crucifixion. Jesus dying on a cross, becoming the final sin offering, the final guilt offering. And that's why we call it Good Friday, because it turned out pretty good for us. And then on Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection. Jesus defeating death forever. This is the rhythm This is the foundation of what we believe. This is the rhythm to what we believe and celebrate as Christians. That's Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus. And I set up this framework because as we look at this encounter with Jesus, we're going to touch on each one of these, but I kind of want you to know that the emphasis is going to be the incarnation. God becoming man. Because some believers will ask, is God really with us? Is God really for me? Does God really love me? And I don't think you have to look any further than the incarnation. If you look at the incarnation, you must conclude that God is passionately in love with you and he is deliberately and unconditionally for you. He is with you in your greatest victory. He is with you in your deepest pain, in your darkest hour. He says, I am with you to the very end of the age and if he's with you, He is for you. The incarnation reveals his nature, who he is and who he wants to be to each one of us if we will simply follow him. He is God. But as long as we simply conclude that Jesus just came to simply improve portions of our life instead of give us a brand new life altogether, we fail to recognize who he really is. When I was a child, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. When I became an adult, I realized what Jesus had done was give me a brand new heart altogether. So now I have tasted and I have seen that the Lord is good and nothing else compares. Let me tell you, if you want a new beginning, if you want a new start, if you want a new life, if you want a new heart, you gotta go to Jesus. You don't need a new marriage You don't need a new car. You don't need a new house. Come on, you really think that a new job is going to give you a Genesis? It's Jesus. We need Jesus. We need Christ and Christ alone. And some of us have built our life on sand and we're crumbling under the pressure. And we need to rebuild on a rock. And some of us, we need to call the inspector out today. Have him look over our foundation. Make sure there's no cracks. Because with Jesus Christ, the foundation is sure. It's solid and it will last to the very end of the age. We see it right here in this first statement. Luke 5, 12. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man. This is incarnation. Jesus met the man in his village. The man didn't have to meet God halfway. This guy didn't even have to move villages. 
God was there. God on earth. God in Abad. Here he is. Here's two things we need to know about the incarnation. The first one is God entered time and space. Now what time and space look like in heaven is an extremely disputed issue. And that's simply because we do not know. And I'm not looking to settle those things here. I mean, the brightest minds would never know because God himself is quick to remind us that no mind could comprehend it. But I think we could agree that God's environment is a little different than what we experience here. You may have heard it put this way. uh, Us trying to understand what heaven is like is like an ant trying to understand the internet. Like there's just, it's not going to compute. But we can agree that it's different than here. It's a little different than what we experience. I mean, he created this. He created a universe with planets and mapped out spaces and borders and rhythms and finite things that hold everything together. He created day and night. Like that's a pattern he created to time. And he could have done that any way he wanted to do it. But yet he's in this guy's village. So before God existed outside of time and space, And he created a universe with time and space. And if that wasn't enough, he entered into time and space and took on their constraints. And I don't think we think about this regarding Jesus enough. He gave up a lot of freedom. There was a lot of sacrifice before the cross, right? I mean, like before, if he wanted to go from one side of creation to the other, he'd just do that as fast or as slow as he wanted to do it. But when he entered the world, if he wanted to go from Jerusalem to Galilee, he had to walk on a road, and it took him the same amount of time as it would take you and me. He also took on flesh and blood, and he could have just come out of the sky. He could have just shown up as Jesus, as an adult, just boom, here I am, take on the sins of the world. No, he was born. He had an umbilical cord. He spent nine months in a womb. He had to be washed off and bathed. He took on flesh and blood. Why? To complete his mission of being the sacrifice, the final sacrifice for the sins of the world. And he couldn't do that until he lived a perfect life. He had to become a man and live a perfect life. Hebrews 2.14, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. So he came to a place where he could totally relate to you and me. So when you pray to Jesus... He isn't in time and space anymore, and he isn't made up of flesh and blood. He's almighty on a throne, earth as his footstool. And yes, he works in time and space. He's an ever-present help in our time of need. He's a present God, but he is not limited by time and space, and he's not limited by flesh and blood. But he was. And when you talk to him, you need to have in the front of your mind that this Jesus I am talking to knows what I'm dealing with. He was tempted in every way. I think about that. And so in some way, shape, or form, everything you've ever wanted to do, Jesus wanted to do. 
since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. He was tempted in the desert the same way Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden. The world, the flesh, and the devil didn't come up with anything new between Adam and Jesus, and they haven't come up with anything new between Jesus and you. Jesus showed us what it was like to be fully man and be fully dependent on God. Hebrews 4.14 says, Since So then since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. When we go to Jesus, he knows how to help us. He knows how to help you. Maybe you feel like today you're waiting around for something and you're having to learn to be patient. Well, Jesus had to be patient. Jesus had a singular mission and he had to wait 33 years for God's plan to be fulfilled in his life. I can't wait 33 minutes before I'm telling God that he needs to step up, he needs to intervene, he needs to get this done. I'm thinking, well, it wasn't yesterday, so it must be today. God's, I had to wait 33 years. I had to be patient. I get it. I understand. The Son of God became the Son of Man, and it took over 30 years for for, for prophecy to line up and for him to be on that cross at 9 a.m. on that Passover Friday, and Jesus knew it his whole life. When I'm talking to him, He gets it. Let me just run through some of these from Scripture. He was misunderstood. Have you ever been misunderstood? Good grief, sometimes I'm just dying for somebody to understand what I'm saying. He gets it. He was tired. There were times when he'd been with too many people, he'd talked to too many people, he did so much, he traveled so far, and he was tired. He can relate. He was frustrated. One day he was so frustrated, he threw over all the tables in the temple courtyard. Have you ever been frustrated? Have you ever just wanted to walk into your office and be like, here's what I think of this desk and this desk, and here's what I think of your project. Here's what I think of this new cubicle. You ever get frustrated? Whew, I feel really lonely on that one. Come on, I get frustrated. If I have to open the hood of my car, this is how like, not mechanically minded. I, if I have to open the hood, I'm already frustrated. <laughs> Jesus had his motives questioned. Have you ever worked your tail off for something? And at the end of it, got zero appreciation? Maybe even had your motives pulled into question? Jesus gets it. He was alone, he was attacked, he was mistrusted. He was single. He knew what it was like to have to provide for his family and make sure they would be okay. And we can look at these things and say, well, you're Jesus. But he would say, yes, but I was in time and space just like you, and I took on flesh and blood just like you. He knows how you're feeling. He knows. He was abandoned. He was betrayed. He was 
abused. Jesus was abused. And he was applauded. He knew what it was like to have everyone turn their back on him. He also knew what it was like to roll into town and have everybody chanting his name. So maybe you're like, well, I'm doing pretty good right now, but Jesus, humble, meek, and mild servant can't really relate. But he knows what it's like to have everyone chanting his name. He knows what it's like to do something amazing and have the press press in on him and take quotes and write about it. One of his closest followers was a guy named Peter. And uh, Peter has a lot of personalities kind of thrown on him, looking back in hindsight, uh, by a lot of people like me, preachers, uh, who need to use him as an illustration. People will even take personality surveys as though they were Peter and, uh, you know, figure out what this guy is like and how he would respond in certain situations. And you've got to admit in all this and in all that that he's tough. He was grit. He was bold. I mean, we're talking about a guy who carried a sword, a weapon. And when Jesus was being arrested, he runs into the scene, and in the dark and in the confusion, he pulls out his weapon and swings it at a guy's head. And in the dark, in the rustling, the guy dodges it, and it cuts off his ear. But that is not what Peter was trying to do. And this guy's hanging out with Jesus. So Jesus isn't out getting a manicure every day, okay? He was tough. He was a guy. He had a beard. It had food in it. He gets it. He also had a follower that was a tax collector, and that kind of just rolls off, but you got to understand that this was high finance. So if you're in a line of work where you're dealing with big sums of money and you're moving stuff around and you're in meetings that include complexities and people's jobs and a lot of figures, Jesus can relate to the rich. Jesus was at parties with the richest people in town. He has nothing against rich people. Jesus can relate to the big things you're working on because, hello, he created you. He gets it. You stick Jesus in a boardroom... He's just fine. He's fine. The poorest of the poor, the richest of the rich. Ladies in the story, guys in the story, tough people in the story. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're dealing with. He can relate. And he's in this guy's village and meets the man. And Jesus didn't say, I would really love to do this for you right now, but I'm going to need you to rise up a little bit. Like, here's heaven, and here's me, and there's you. What are you going to do now? No, Jesus is in this guy's. He came all the way to the man. All the way. And that's already more than we deserve. So now that we know a little bit about Jesus, the main character in this story. I want to take a look at this, this guy. Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. And we're not told how the man discovered he had leprosy, uh, but it maybe had looked something like this. This is how it would have looked for many men to discover they had leprosy in that time. Maybe it was that he came in from plowing one day and showed his wife a sore spot that was hurting him as he was working in the palm of his hand. 
And she would have looked at it and put some poultice on it or something like that and bandaged it. And he would have gone back to work only for it to hurt worse the next day. And over the next couple of days, they would become more and more alarmed by the sore spot to where the wife would suggest that he go visit the priest. And after visiting the priest, he would isolate the man for 14 days. Only two weeks later, for him to come out of isolation and see that the leprosy has spread and the sore spot in his palm has now become sore spots all over his body. And the priest would have to tell him, you're a leper. And as the weight of that would sink in, the man would say, can I go say goodbye to my wife? Can I say, go say goodbye to my kids? And the priest would say, no, you don't get it. You're a leper. You can never be close to anyone ever again. And as the weight of that would sink in, he would realize that he would never hold his wife in his arms ever again. And he would never get to pick up his children and enjoy his children and love on his children again. The regulation being that he could never be within six feet of another person at the least. And this is how contagious they thought this was, that he could never be, if the wind was blowing, he would have to be outside of 150 feet of another individual. And on top of that, if anyone approached him or came near him or walked by him, he would have to yell, unclean. I am unclean. And that is this man's life day after day. And his family would bring him food and they would leave it in a certain place. But after they would depart, he would come and get it and he would watch his wife and his kids grow old from a distance. And then one day Jesus Christ comes into his village. And when the man saw Jesus... He bowed with his face to the ground. And you just got to visualize this, of this guy seeing Jesus and coming up to Jesus and them meeting, but him not getting too close. And he bows down and with his face to the ground, so his face is to the ground. He cannot see anyone else. He cannot see Jesus, but he begins begging for the Lord to heal him begs, Lord, if you're willing. And you got to love that question because it's not a question of ability. He believes. It's a question of submission. He says, I believe you can do it. Your will be done. And Jesus reaches out and touches him. Can you imagine the shock, the surprise? He doesn't see it coming. He's not facing Jesus. And after who knows how long that he's never had someone touch him, Jesus reaches out and touches him and shocks him with his hand and embraces the man. Jesus could have healed him first. He spoke, be healed. Why didn't he just say, be healed, and then embrace the man? Because Jesus is saying, that's not how things work anymore. I embrace you first. Come to me. I will clean you up. I will heal you. And he touches the man first. He came down first. The world 
didn't have to get cleaned up for Jesus to come. He stepped out of light, stepped down into our darkness, came into our grave. That's why there's no room for self-righteousness in the kingdom of God, because you did nothing. You did not call God out. He called you out. You were laying dead in your grave. Jesus awakened you, revived you, grabbed you, and pulled you into the light and into life. Jesus did it all, paid it all. Then he says, I love this. Are you kidding? I am willing. I love that he says, I am. You know, we've been talking, and pastor's been talking about that's God's name. We're doing these I am events. He says, if you're willing, I am. I am willing. God is willing. Jesus Christ is willing. He wants to bless you. He wants to revive you. He wants to give you a life. He has great things for you. Every good and pleasing gift. Here's why we don't believe that. Because we have some okay things already. And there's stuff in our hands. There's, there's stuff in our life and stuff in our hands that we have. And we feel pretty good about it. And we don't want to let go and have God give us a gift because we're afraid that what we're letting go of is actually better than what God wants to give us. So I say, I'm not letting go of this because there's no way what's coming is better than this. So I'm just going to hang on to this. And then we miss out on God's blessing because he can't fit anything in there. And that's why... God will sometimes let us lose everything so our hands are finally open for him to put his blessings in there. And man, do we fight it. I fight it so hard. There's no way I can lose this. There's no way what God has for me is better than this. And we fight it in other people. We say, no, we can't let them lose that. We've got to prop them up. We've got to help them. We can't let them lose this. But if they would, they, God would finally be able to show them that what he has is so much better. And what does God have for us? Everything. Everything good. Every good and pleasing gift. What does God have for you in the future? The unfolding of everything good. Jesus came into a world, he gave everything he had. He emptied his hands and he emptied his life for you. So Jesus touches the man and then he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Can you believe that? I mean, that was it. Jesus, aren't you going to ask this guy a question? Aren't you going to ask for a commitment? Aren't you going to ask for a story, some background, some future promise? He doesn't. doesn't ask for any commitment back. He just does it. I mean, think about this. Go here with me. If you want anything anymore, can you just get it? I mean, even in our consumer culture, you can't just buy anything without even answering questions. No, I don't want a rewards card. I just want to buy this. No, I don't want a debit card or a credit card or to become a preferred customer. I just want to buy this. No, I don't want to give you my telephone number or my zip code or my email address. I just want to buy this. 
I don't want to give you a username or a password with a capital letter and a number that I can't remember. I just want to buy this. I can't give you my license plate or my social security number. And no, I don't want to donate to save orphaned mosquitoes in northern Alaska. I just want to buy this Twix bar. I have cash. Ring me up. There's two in here. I'll give you one of them. Just let me buy this. Jesus gives no conditions, no qualifiers, no caveats, no fine print, no stipulations, no limitations. Restrictions do not apply. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. And are you ready for the twist of this whole thing? Leprosy in the Gospels is a symbol of our condition in sin. So in our sin, we are separated from God. In our sin, nothing good is coming away, our way. In our sin, we are left for dead. In our sin, a perfect, holy God has no business even looking our way. But check this out. Jesus reached out and touched us, incarnation. And hanging from a tree, holes in his side and his hands and his feet, lashes all over his body, a crown of thorns crushed into his skull. He says, I am willing. I am willing. And standing outside an empty grave, victorious over death, Jesus Christ triumphantly says to us, be healed. This encounter with this leper is our story. This is our encounter with Jesus. This is everyone in here's testimony today. Read this verse with me out of Colossians, please. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Let's pray together. God, we believe it. Help us to empty our hands of whatever we need to let go of so we can receive your blessings, your truth, your grace, your love, so we can receive more of you, God. Help us to empty our life of anything that is not of you so we can receive more of you, less of us. May we cling tightly to your truth and nothing else and allow you to release us from our weights. We may know you more. We may love you more. It's through Jesus' name we pray. Amen.